Matthew 28, we're going to be looking at verses 16 to the end of the chapter. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this reading of your word, a passage that is uh, uh, very familiar to many of us. And Father, uh, we ask that uh, uh, you would teach us, Father, this morning. We pray, Father, as we continue in our study that, uh, Father, you would ultimately be our teacher and our guide, that, Father, you would be pleased to meet us each where we are, and that, Father, we would find... uh, uh, encouragement, and we would find uh, uh, grace, O oh Lord, from your hand as we look to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. As I have said several times through the course of this series that we've been looking at for the last uh, few months, uh, a number of months ago, it's been maybe six months ago, uh, a few of you um, began to ask that I teach on what we call covenantal baptism, which is indeed the it's the it's the position of the ARP Church. It's the position of the Westminster Confessional Standards, and uh, I've had a, a, a number of months to think about this. And as I thought about it, as I've also shared, uh, we really uh, rather than just preaching one message on covenantal baptism per se, it seemed to me that we needed to do at least an introduction on the covenants which is what we've been doing over the last uh, three weeks. And I'm, I'm really excited because so many of you have come to me and approached me and said, you know, this has been really encouraging. This has been, you, you've, you've I, I, I think the Lord's really working. We're seeing things maybe we haven't seen before. And, you know, at Friday's bonfire, I mean, a couple of you expressed to me that this has been your favorite series. So I'm... That's great. <laughs> I thank God for that. Uh, it is encouraging. And I think one of the things it helps us do is it helps us to see how the Bible is put together. It's a big book, isn't it? And you got all these, you got 66, 66 books in the Protestant Bible. And how do we make sense of all of this? But if we begin to see these threads, as we begin to see these covenant, the covenantal structures of it, okay, now we begin to see how it's actually uh, put together. Uh, this morning, I want to make an application of what we've been learning. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the covenant of grace is, is a faith-strengthening doctrine. Uh, let, me, let me repeat that. The covenant of grace, you'll find as you begin to uh, immerse yourself in it, that it is a faith-strengthening doctrine. We're going to see that again this morning. And I, I say this because our faith is so prone to weakness and wandering, isn't it? I mean, I, uh, I'm not alone here, am I? I? I have a sneaking suspicion I'm not alone. Uh, our, our faith is prone to frailty and wandering and all kinds of things. And the covenants, 
they, they show forth to us God's infinite faithfulness, his steadfast character. We see that in the covenants. And, and God is, God, listen, God could just simply make us promise. He could just simply make promises to us, and that would be the end of it. Who are we to, to disagree with his promises? His, his resume is perfect. But he's gone to a lot of trouble uh, to express his promises, to root them, to ground them in way of covenants, in this covenantal structure. And one could even go as far to say that God really is a covenantal God. He, he really is. Uh, we saw that in the first uh, message several weeks ago, that when, when we look at the covenant, what we call the covenant of redemption, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit would covenant with, within themselves. Uh, so God is indeed a covenantal God. But he has uh, come to us with such grace, and it's designed uh, to strengthen us in our weakness. Now, I uh, very purposely chose a very popular text this morning uh, for much of the week. There are so many places we could have went in, uh, in the scriptures to do what we're going to do this morning. And, and uh, I kept coming back to Matthew uh, 28 and uh, some of you have been over Matthew 28 so many times you're probably thinking okay what could what could possibly be said about Matthew 28 that I haven't heard before well here might be something that maybe you've never heard about Matthew 28 and that is its covenantal nature have you ever thought about the covenantal nature of Matthew 28 now what do I mean by covenantal nature let's take what we're learning from the covenant of grace. And let's ask ourselves this question. How does Matthew 28 fit into what we now know about the covenant of grace? And we're going to see here in a few minutes, it fits like a glove. And really from there, I want to show again, I started the show last week. I want to show the continuity that we have as we go from Genesis 3.15. We'll start there again this morning. But as we go from Genesis 3.15, which is where we started last week, and I pointed out that thread of the promised offspring that begins in Genesis 3.15 and how that is woven all the way through the fabric of Scripture, all the way to Revelation 21, isn't it? Uh, I want to show this continuity. So let me begin by picking up where we left off. You don't have to turn to all these passages. If I asked you to turn to all these passages, we'd be hearing fans running through the whole service. The pages would be flipping all the time. But uh, remember from last week, those of you who are with us, Genesis 3.15, when God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Uh, here, uh, we see there's this promised offspring in Genesis 3.15. You remember that, con that discussion that we had? Uh, no sooner had Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and God comes into the garden. And remember, Adam and Eve are in a covenant of works, a covenant based on their performance. Uh, they were to follow God, and they were to follow Him completely. And the memorial of their obedience and allegiance was found in their abstinence from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, but what do they go and do? Uh, they eat from the tree. They break. They are in breach of the covenant of works. The whole thing comes toppling down into ruin. And what does God do? That was a question that I asked last week. What does God do? Well, he comes into the garden. He institutes the covenant of grace, doesn't he? He promises, he promises a, a savior. 
And we get that promise in the word offspring. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, the offspring of the woman. Now, I want to expand on that this morning, this promised offspring. I didn't talk about Genesis 6 through 9 last week, namely God's discourse with Noah. Uh, God makes a covenant with Noah, doesn't he? Uh, You'll recall, if you've read Genesis, or you may recall uh, from the story, that uh, human depravity had reached such heights that that God decided to destroy the whole world uh, by virtue of a flood, a worldwide uh, flood. And uh, what would that do to his promise uh, of offspring? What would that do if he destroyed the entire human race? What would that do to the promise in Genesis 3.15? It would eradicate it, wouldn't it? So God, out of his abundant mercy and grace, chooses Noah and his family. He says, listen, I want you to build an ark. You build this ark, and, and then they build the ark very faithfully, and they get in the ark, and it's in the ark where God saves them from the judgment waters uh, of, of the rain that floods the earth, correct? And it's because of this that some scholars, uh, O'Palmer Robertson would be an example, have referred to the Noahic covenant, the God's covenant with Noah, as a covenant of preservation. Now, why? Because God is preserving, uh, the, he's preserving this offspring motif that we see runs all the way through the scriptures. Does that make sense? And... Uh, Uh, Last week, we looked at God's covenant with Abraham. You remember in Abraham, uh, God says to Abraham, makes the covenant with Abraham, and he promises Abraham that in him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Uh, And of course, in Genesis 22, 18, uh, we see that it's in Abraham's offspring that all the families of the earth will be blessed or all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We'll look at that here again in a couple of minutes. I didn't mention Moses. I don't think I mentioned Moses last week. Did I mention Moses? I don't think I did. But when we get to Moses, Moses makes a promise. He says in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15, he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. And the New Testament, of course, applies this verse to Jesus. You see, each one of these covenants is looking to Christ, isn't it? He is the offspring. Uh, He's promised in Genesis 3.15. He's preserved in in Genesis 6. He's promised again to Abraham in Genesis 12 through 25, and then to to uh, further on through the, the, the patriarchs. All of, we find these promises all over Genesis. Then we come to Deuteronomy, and we see these promises made to Moses, and then we get to the time of David, 2 Samuel 7, which I did bring up last week. I think I brought David up last week. In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. There's that offspring motif again. There's that thread again running through the scriptures. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Again, pointing to Christ, isn't it? Christ is the star of each one of these things all the way through. And may I remind you, we're in the Old Testament. This is all Old Testament stuff. Uh, and what we have here is the covenant of grace. So, I mean, notice it extends, it extends through the covenant of Adam. 
It extends into the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, and it takes us all the way into the new covenant. Now I want you to listen. Listen to the melody of Genesis twenty-two eighteen, which goes, quote, and God is speaking to Abraham here. He says, quote, and in your offspring shall all of the nations of the earth be blessed. Okay? Now, compare that with our text this morning, Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus says, Jesus is now raised from the dead. He's about to ascend into heaven. And he says to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of who? Who, who is the church to go and make disciples of? Answer of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see the continuity there? In Abraham, all the nations and families of the earth will be blessed. How are they going to be blessed? They're going to be blessed through the promised offspring. Who is the promised offspring? It's Christ Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross, dies, is, put in, is buried. Third day, he rose from the dead. Before he ascends, he gives the commission to his church to go do what? Go, therefore, and make disciples of who? The nations. You see that? You see the covenantal structure of the Great Commission? It's structured in the covenant of grace, isn't it? Here's just a little tidbit. It can't fail. Sometimes it feels like it's failing, doesn't it? It can't. It won't. It's impossible. It can't fail. Now, as I said a couple of weeks ago, in terms of the covenants that God has made with man, there are only two. Uh, in terms of God's covenants with man, there are only two. We looked at a third one, which goes back into eternity, the covenant of redemption. But in terms of God's covenants with man, there are only two. There's the covenant of works, which was breached in the Garden of Eden. And then there's the covenant of grace, the covenant of grace which extends through Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and is fulfilled in the new covenant uh, that, God in, uh, that Christ inaugurates. Now, there are two important concepts here that we have to understand if we're going to get our minds wrapped around the subject of baptism. And these two concepts are promise and fulfillment. Promise and fulfillment. If we think of the promises to uh, Adam, and to Noah, and to Abraham, and to Moses, and to David. These are, uh, these are, these are promises that are awaiting fulfillment, aren't they? Uh, they're waiting. They're promises that are waiting for the one who is to come, correct? Okay, once Jesus comes, now all of these promises reach uh, their fulfillment. Does that make sense? In Matthew 28, we have the fulfillment uh, of the promise, the promised offspring, the promised Christ has been crowned with all authority and in heaven and earth, the prophets, they all prophesied of this. They all look forward to this. And here in these words, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here we see fulfillment, don't we? And it is here where Christ institutes the doctrine of baptism. 
and or I'm sorry, the ordinance of baptism. It's here where he entered, where he uh, institutes that. Now, with the foundation that we've been establishing over the last couple of weeks, I, I want to begin to explore this uh, ordinance of baptism. After all, that is what you uh, asked me to take up. If I stop short here, then you'd be wondering, what have, what have you been doing? You know, this has all been cool, but we really want to know about baptism. And before I make this application, I want to share with you, some of you already know, that there, there are a couple of ways of looking at baptism. There are, there are two major ways. And I, I want to say this as I, as I venture in, I'm going to share with you, as I've wrestled with the Scriptures, the position that, I've, that, that, that I hold on this, but I, I want to let you in on something. When I went to seminary, I went to seminary with folks who didn't share this position, godly, gifted men who did not share this position. We used to debate it in a very friendly way, but one thing that I was always proud of, and I used to tell Tammy when I'd get home, like we would have these wonderful discussions where we disagreed with one another, on these things, we used to have we have that we had these discussions in a lot of areas, not just baptism, but it never ever jeopardized or compromised the love that we had for one another. I'm so proud of that. Some of you might not agree with me on this position. I'll let you in on something else. My favorite preacher, if we're allowed to have a favorite preacher, I hope we're allowed to have a favorite preacher because I kind of have one. Uh, he, we disagree on this issue. He holds a different position than me on this issue. He's still my favorite preacher. What I'm trying to say is this, is this is an important issue, but it's a secondary issue. It's an important issue, but it's a secondary issue. Feel free to disagree with me if you disagree with me. That's okay. Uh, I'm going to give you the position that we have here at the ARP Church. And I, I don't think that uh, if, you, if you share uh, an opposite position, I don't think for a moment that in one sermon you're suddenly going to come to realize, oh man, I need to switch gears here. I'm not really, all I'm trying to do here is show, okay, what is the position that the ARP holds? That's all I'm wanting to do. And, and I'll leave you uh, to follow your conscience as you study the scriptures. But I would ask you to do this, study the scriptures. Uh, don't just study where you've been through the first 20 or 30 or 40 years of your life. Study the scriptures um, and see what the scriptures say. Now, when we're studying the Bible, there are three things that are important. The first is context. And what is the other? Context and the third context. Now, the first thing I want to say about baptism is... Baptism doesn't come to us in a vacuum. There's a context of baptism. And the reason I say that is because so much of the time, so much discussion that I've, I've heard and that I've had with other people, it's like baptism pops out of nowhere. It's like it just suddenly pops out of Matthew 28 and then we've got baptism. It just pops in. And, and uh, that's a real Western way of looking at it. A real Western way of looking at it. Uh, baptism has a context that's rooted very firmly and very deeply in the Old Testament scriptures. And that's what I want to really begin with. To understand baptism, the important thing we need to do is see the role of what we'll call the covenantal sign. The role of the covenantal sign. Uh, God has not only revealed his will to us by way of his word, he has also given us signs. Uh, for example, when God made his covenant with Noah, he graciously gave Noah a sign. What is the sign? 
It's a rainbow, isn't it? It's a rainbow. And what does the sign serve? What's the purpose of that sign? It's to remind it's, it's to remind us of a promise, isn't it? It points to a promise. In fact, God even says, when I look at it, I'm going to remember by what? I'm going to remember my promise. So the rainbow points to a promise that is made by God, namely to never flood the entire earth again, to destroy it by way of flood. Now, here's an important concept. The sign points to the promise. Does that make sense? It's pointing to the promise. So when we see a rainbow in the sky, our faith in the promise that God will never destroy the earth by way of flood, by way of a flood, is strengthened. We're so prone to weakness. We're so prone to wandering. But when we look up and we see a rainbow, what are we supposed to think of when we see that rainbow? We're supposed to be reminded of a promise that God made. And this might be a great thing if you lived in Florida right now. Um, just God is never going to destroy the entire world by way of a flood. So the sign points to the promise. Now, likewise, when God establishes his covenant with Abraham, he gave him a covenant sign, didn't he? What is the sign? It's circumcision, right? God says in Genesis 17 and verse 11, he says to Abraham, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, the question that we might ask of Genesis 17, 11 is, okay, in what way is circumcision a sign? What is it a sign of? As we study the scriptures, the first thing we might think of is it's a sign of identification. It identifies uh, Abraham by undergoing circumcision is identifying himself as a covenant member, uh, a member of the covenant of grace, as, a, as, a, as, a, as the covenant people of God, is he not? Um, so we see identification. Secondly, we have the sign of rebirth or regeneration. Deuteronomy 30 in verse 6, the Lord, uh, which reads, And the Lord uh, your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And here, uh, uh, the idea of circumcision is pointing to this rebirth, this, uh, this inward change, you know. Uh, person's heart, this rebirth, this regeneration. Does it sound reasonable? Um, thirdly, we have it's a sign of cleansing. Isaiah 52, verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into, your, into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. So circumcision is a sign of, of, uh, of uh, cleansing, isn't it? Uh, there are other verses we could go to for these things. Fourthly, we would add to that repentance, Jeremiah 4, 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your hearts, O men of Judah and in inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. So here we have circumcision uh, pointing, the sign given to Abraham, it's pointing to identification. Uh, it's pointing to regeneration. It's pointing to cleansing. It's pointing to repentance. Does that, does that make sense? 
Now, with that in mind, let's think about the context of Genesis 17, because Genesis 17 has a context, and it's, it's, Genesis, it's Genesis 16. And if you think about Genesis 16, what's going on in Genesis 16? Uh, you know, Abraham has been promised a son. And many years have gone by, and Abraham does not have a son to his wife, Sarah. There's no son. Many years have gone by. There is no son. These two were elderly when God promised them a son. And many years have gone by, and there's still no son. So they take it in their own hands, and then Sarah says, Listen, I think you better take my maidservant Hagar. And I think, you, you know, I think this maybe is the way God's going to do this. And so Abraham takes the maidservant Hagar and marries her, and they have a son named Ishmael, don't they? You see, what's going on here is they're wavering in their faith. And then we come to Genesis 17, and God renews his promise to Abraham and Sarah that indeed they will conceive and indeed will bear a son. And in verse 18, Abraham says to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God corrects Abraham and says, No, no, Abraham. No. Sarah is going to bear a son, just like I promised. And you're going to name him Isaac. That's going to be his. That's going to be the promised one. So you see the context here is Abraham is wavering. Who could blame him? He's wavering. I mean, sure, we could blame him. Of course, it's, it's God promised that we should trust him. But being frail individuals like Abraham, we can understand, can't we? And again, that's what I'm saying. These signs are meant to strengthen wavering, wandering faith. So God gives them the sign of circumcision, and circumcision is a sign of God's what? Of God's promise. You see, it becomes a sign of God's promise. It is not a sign of Abraham's wavering faith. That's important that we understand that. It's not a sign of Abraham's wavering faith. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He says, quote, Circumcision was not a seal of Abraham's faith response, but of the covenant righteousness which he received through faith. Let me share that with you again. Circumcision was not a seal of Abraham's faith response, but of the covenant righteousness which he received through faith. End of quote. So, in other words, uh, what is happening here? The sign of circumcision is not pointing to the fact that Abraham believed God. It's not his faith response. It's pointing to the fact, it's pointing to the righteousness that Abraham received when he believed God. Does that make sense? It's not pointing to what Abraham did. It's pointing to what God has promised to do. And if we think that through for a minute, how, how generally when we need strengthening, when our faith is wandering all over the place, thinking back about all the stuff that we have done, usually, at least in my life, is not necessarily strengthening to me. I need, I need something better than that. In fact, what I usually do when I am wondering is I think back to what God has done in my life. 
That's what the psalmist teaches us to do, to look back. What has God done? Look at these past mercies that we've received. Look at the graces that we have had. Look at all of these things that God has done. Well, that's faith strengthening. That's faith strengthening. Abraham, look at your circumcision. Look at your circumcision. It's not a sign of your faith response. It's a sign of the righteousness that God has given you when you put your trust in him. Oh, it's a perfect righteousness, Abraham. You've been identified as mine. You're mine. And I'm going to give you everything that you need because you believe me. You see, does that make sense so far? Now, in this con- it's in this context which baptism is given to us. When we survey the New Testament concerning the ordinance of baptism, a similar discovery is made. What is baptism? Well, this is, this, these are not exhaustive pictures, by the way, of circumcision and baptism. These are not exhaustive. We could preach on this for many weeks. But uh, the first thing that we might say about baptism is identification. When a person is identified, or when a person is baptized, rather, they're identified as, as belonging to the people of God, are they not? And this idea of, 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 of baptism... Uh, as identification is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.2 when he says all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What is he referring to? That all were identified with Moses. It's this idea of identification. Baptism is a sign of identification. Secondly, it's a sign of regeneration. At, uh, at Pentecost, in his Pentecost sermon, Peter says to those who were gathered there, after he had just preached his uh, stinging message, he says to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here we see it's a sign of regeneration. Uh, we also see it's a sign of repentance in that same verse. Sign of regeneration, sign of repentance. Uh, in Acts twenty two sixteen, we see that baptism is a sign of cleansing. Water baptism is a sign of cleansing where the Apostle Paul says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So we see that uh, baptism, therefore, signifies the very same things as circumcision, doesn't it? Uh, now, there's a difference between them. There's a difference between them. And I, there's, there's, there's a number of differences we could point out, but a little bit at a time. The fundamental difference, I think, that I would want to say first is this. Circumcision is a sign of the promise. Sign of the promise. Baptism, sign of fulfillment. Does that make sense? Think about the nature of circumcision. It's bloody. It's a bloody sacrifice, not a, a bloody sacrament, not sacrifice, sacrament. We'll get to the sacrifice in a minute. It's a bloody sacrament that's inappropriate now that Jesus has come and shed his blood, isn't it? And besides that, it wasn't, it wasn't as inclusive as baptism, is it? It's not as inclusive. Uh, baptism is related to the promise. I mean, when Christ comes, circumcision gives away to baptism. Now, if you'll turn to Colossians 2, 11 to 12, I want to show you the relationship there. Now, this is a passage that I'm not going to try this morning to try to open this all the way up because really it would, that would be a chore to do if that was the only thing we were doing this morning. 
But I'm going to give you a general, some general thoughts on it. Colossians 2, 11 to 12, where we read, In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Okay, you can see it's very densely packed, isn't it? Right? Um, how does all this work? Well, let me say this to start. We've broken the covenant of works, right? Adam, broke, Adam was in breach of the covenant of works. Romans 5 teaches us that when Adam fell, we fell too, correct? We're in a terrible mess. We're in a terrible mess here. But Jesus comes and enters in with us. He is circumcised on the eighth day. You know, by the time he is uh, Hayden's age here, Jesus has been circumcised. Jesus is born in the line of Abraham, Luke chapter 2, and he is he undergoes circumcision. He undergoes circumcision. And Christ's circumcision is the ultimate circumcision in which Abraham's circumcision and everyone else's circumcision ultimately points. Because in Christ is the one who will truly be cut off when he goes to the cross, isn't he? He is truly cut off. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In fulfillment of Psalm 22, Jesus cries these dreadful words on the cross, doesn't he? As he is cut off for his people. You see, on the eighth day, he steps in that line. He gets in this mess with us by virtue of his circumcision. He gets in this mess with us. And then 30 years later, approximately 30 years later out in the desert, he approaches John the Baptist to be baptized. And John the Baptist in trepidation says, I need to be baptized by you. And what does Jesus say? No, this is, this is proper and fulfilling righteousness. Could you imagine baptizing Jesus? Baptism is a sign of the remission of sins. It's a sign of regeneration. It's a sign of repentance. Jesus has nothing to repent of. Do you repent of your sins? I don't have any. He doesn't have any. Or does he? Baptism is the waters of judgment. Think of Noah's ark. Noah and his family are saved in that ark as what is taking place outside. The waters of judgment. And Peter makes the connection, doesn't he? Between the ark and the baptism. Jesus undergoes the waters of judgment. Not for his own sins, but for yours and mine. And this is what baptism points to, isn't it? You see, Jesus steps in it with us. We're in an awful mess. And Jesus comes and he really does step in it with us, doesn't he? He steps in it with us to what end that he might save us from it. And I would submit to you that when your commitment is failing and weak and in need of strengthening, look to your baptism. Look to your baptism. Look to what your baptism points to. 
Go back to the desert with Jesus and John the Baptist where he takes on the waters of judgment. Ultimately, this baptism is pointing to the cross where Jesus is literally baptized in his own blood. Does that make sense? You see suddenly how powerful the sign baptism becomes when we look at it that way. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to offer us strength and comfort. Now, when we look at baptism simply as pointing to our own personal faith, we don't get that. It's so much of the time that's what baptism is described as. Well, baptism is a, it's it's about you know it's it's you know I, I, listen I've put my faith and trust in Christ and I'm going to be baptized. Uh, uh, baptism is a sign of my personal faith and trust in Jesus, and that's how many believe. That's what many believe, and there there are churches that actually have almost have that verbatim written in their description of baptism. Well, I, I want to challenge that. I, I don't think that's really that strengthening. Um, I don't think that's very strengthening. Now, you'll notice that I haven't used the term infant baptism. This is the first time I've said it that I can recall in this entire series. Why is that? Because I want you to see that what I'm describing here is covenantal baptism. A lot of times when it's referred to as infant baptism, the only thing thing people think about is the fact that infants and children are included in it. There's so much more to it than that, isn't there? If I wrapped up right now and didn't say anything else, you would have been given a very strength, in my opinion, a very strength faith-strengthening faith strengthening, uh, message on the covenantal sign uh, of the Old Testament and the New. But I want to say a few words here because it, this is really what is, is of interest to you, is how, how do our children play into this? Where are our children in this? Well, the the position that that I hold is your children uh, are in covenant. They're in the covenant of grace. If you are a true believer, uh, my position on this is that uh, Becca and Chris's beloved little Hayden right there has been born into the covenant of grace. That's my personal position, and I find it to be so lovely that it's hard for me to keep my composure And I could say a lot of things about that, but I could say this lovely little child could be born to anyone. But he wasn't born to anyone, was he? He was put right there in those loving arms. Why? Because of his purpose. And Laura probably wouldn't like me pointing attention to her, but it's too late for that. I already did it. But my position, I don't want to leave you out, Laura. My position, that's that's, that's the position of the ERP church. Just because it's my position, it's the position of the ERP church. That doesn't make it right. You need to study the scriptures for yourself. There are fine people that disagree with me on this. Finer than my, way finer than myself. Better, much better than myself. They would disagree with that. But the position of the ERP church, my position is I've studied the scriptures and seen them, is that child you're carrying is in the covenant of grace. And why would I say that? Because we're all one people. The Old Testament people and the New Testament people are one people. Not everybody believes that. But we have one Savior. How many Saviors do we have? We have one. 
We have one covenant of grace that I've shown. You've seen the thread. It goes all the way through the scriptures, the offspring. The covenant of Adam, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with, uh, with Abraham, the covenant with David, the new covenant, the promised offspring coming in Christ. One Savior. We have one Savior. We have, we're saved by faith. The Old Testament uh, believer is saved the same way. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. If you're believing in God this morning, it is counted to you the same way. The same way as him. And you're just as righteous as he was. You're no less righteous than Abraham because the very same righteousness has been applied to you both. And without that righteousness, you're not going to heaven. But with that righteousness, nothing can keep you out of heaven. And we are collectively the offspring of the woman. We are collectively the offspring of the woman. Sometimes the offspring is used singularly, as Paul does in Galatians 3. Sometimes it's used in plural. When it's used singularly, Jesus is the head representing us all. When it's used plural, it's speaking of all of us. Jesus is the head. Does that make sense? We're the offspring of the woman. The discontinuity rests primarily in promise and fulfillment. Now, one of the great promises of the covenant of grace is that it is for us and our children. It is for us and our children. Genesis 6.18, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Later, Genesis 9.9, God speaking to Noah, after the flood, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Genesis 17.7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And the covenant commitment is embraced by Peter at Pentecost. At Pentecost, Acts 2.38-39, Peter says to those who he has just preached to, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children. It is for you and for your children. Now, if children are not included, and this is a sermon for another day, but I would say if children were not included, we would have hundreds and hundreds of, uh, of children that would suddenly be excommunicated from the church. Because they're in covenant with their fathers. Peter is speaking to a a people who are in covenant with God. And they're in covenant with the fathers. So baptism points to the whole promise of salvation. It's a seal of every spiritual blessing. Uh, You know, in conclusion, let me offer another quote from Sinclair Ferguson. Where he writes, quote, Baptism is a sign in that it pictures as a visible word the gospel and its blessings, end of quote. That baptism is a sign in that it pictures as a visible word, the gospel and its blessings, end of quote. In other words, baptism is the gospel made visible to our senses. It's the gospel made visible to our senses and it communicates grace. That's another sermon for another day too. How does it communicate grace? I can't go into that this morning, but we will. We're gonna return to this many times. Uh, Much more needs to be said, but there's just not... We can only take so much in at once, and I feel that's probably a pretty big chunk right there. 
so I, I pray that this short time that we've spent, the covenants will continue to be a blessing to you. And by all means, do not feel afraid to disagree with me on this, okay? If you disagree with me on this, it is okay. And you can express your disagreements and we can talk about that and it's okay. I refuse to part company over this issue. You, you, that, would be, that would be grievous to me. We never did it at seminary. I've never done it with anyone. I, I, I won't do it. Again, I want to say my favorite preacher is, would describe himself as a Baptist. Um, we can have disagreements and still love each other. Uh, now, I think at this point it'd be best in two weeks when we come back from vacation, I want, to, uh, I want to just jump into Romans. Learning is about space and repetition. An attorney told me that once. I think it's so true. We, we get a little bit and then we need a little time off from it. And then we come back to it and we get a little more. And I think it's a good time for us to take time off from this. We'll go into Romans and from time to time we'll return to this stuff. Okay? Um, and if there's ever anything that any of you want me to speak on and teach on and preach on. You've, you've brought up this doctrine. It's been a lot. It's been an enormous amount of fun for me. And uh, uh, please, by all means, uh, uh, bring up many more things and we'll work them in, okay? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, I'm thinking of the proverb, uh, iron sharpens iron. And uh, Father, as we think about these doctrines, uh, Father, there must be disagreements among us. Uh, there, there, there are indeed disagreements among us in the church, many disagreements. But Father, how it must grieve the Holy Spirit when we take up division over things that are not primary, things that are not essential to our salvation. Father, we discussed this morning things that are very, very important. I think they're extraordinarily important. But Father, I pray that as we, as we wrestle with these things, Father, that uh, unity and brotherly and sisterly love will, will take precedence over whatever differences we may have on this great subject. Uh, for Father, very fine people are, are on both sides of this, of this discussion. And Father, I uh, do want to approach this discussion with much humility, oh Father. And Lord, I pray that you would extend that humility to us all that as we wrestle with this, we truly would be willing to wrestle wherever your word takes us. And Father, work in our consciousness for your glory, that Father, we would indeed follow where the scripture leads, and that uh, Father, we would be able to submit ourselves to, to uh, saying, okay, I wanna go where your, where your word leads me. So Father, uh, I pray this for myself and for everyone else in this room, we thank you, O Lord, for the Spirit of Christ. We thank you for the promises of which baptism points. And we thank you, Father, that you've given us uh, the gospel in sign, that you've given us this ordinance that communicates the gospel to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.